Sister Jocelyn here, and welcome to another episode of Faith on the Journey. If this is your first time tuning in, we welcome you. We are so glad that you're here, and we want you to know that you have a team of people who are committed to helping you strengthen your faith, heal your heart, and discover a sense of community. Now today, I'm excited to welcome to the show someone who I met several years ago when I was at McCormick Theological Seminary. She was my professor uh, when we were studying domestic violence, and she taught on domestic violence and sexual violence in the class. And I remember how real she was as she was tackling these difficult subjects and showing us what we can do to support those who've experienced sexual violence. I learned there she was an advocate. She was someone who was extremely knowledgeable, and she actually had her own testimony. And recently, this year, she released her new book that is called The Trauma of Sexual and Domestic Violence, and it's powerful. There she tells her story of surviving, and she wants to encourage others who've experienced this as well. And so Dr. Sharon Ellis Davis is an affiliate professor at McCormick Theological Seminary, a trainer for the Faith Trust Institute, and a nationally recognized speaker on domestic violence in the church and society. And she's going to bless us with her story here today. Welcome, Dr. Sharon Ellis Davis. Thank you so much, Reverend Jocelyn Jones. And it's so good to be here. It's good to be with you again, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Yes, me too. I, I really would love for people to learn more about your story. Uh, we see you out on stage all the time teaching, <laughs> but you have a powerful testimony. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And let's start off a little bit laying the foundation that you're a, a PK kid, a pastor's kid, right? And so yes. you were formed in the church. Tell us a little bit about that and your family dynamics. Yes, I was born uh, and raised in the uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, PA of W. And uh, that my grandfather, my father's father, uh, founded and pastored what is still known as the Indiana Avenue Pentecostal Church of God that's located on 35th and Indiana in Chicago, Illinois. And so what I remember about the Pentecostal Church the most uh, is the restrictions, because as a child, you know, when you hear that thou cannot do this, thou cannot do that, you know, coupled with the thou cannots in the Bible, uh, it really restricts your personhood, even though I didn't have that language then, what I had, the language I had then was, <laughs> you know, it was just like, my God, what can we do? Maybe that should be the question. And so we grew up under the strictness of the law. Holiness was our word. And, 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 and everything that related to holiness, we had to be a part of. And that was restrictions and the way in which we got saved and the way in which we tarried and the way in which we were recognized as full-fledged Christians within that denomination. That's so much pressure, <laughs> especially for a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it was also a foundation, laying a foundation in terms of your relationship with God. So we praise God for that. Yeah. Um, but even as a PK kid, uh, it didn't keep you exempt from experiencing trauma in your life. No. And so I would like for you to talk about your earlier years when you experienced yeah. abuse in the home. Yeah, that was a story. Um, and in, in, in my book, I tried to articulated in a way that people can understand that nothing in life is simple as we try to make it when we're doing boundary training or when we're talking about domestic violence or, or, or sexual abuse. There's a lot that goes into that conversation 
and it usually ends up with you know uh, damn to the to the perpetrator and 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 healing for the 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 survivor of of, of abuse, you know. But I when I try to tell this this story in the book in a way that that recognizes the contradictions, you know, my dad was a loving dad, you know, as as far as he was able to. Uh, he we went on vacations. Uh, we didn't have the the um, the station wagon, and we didn't go on the vacations like they did on television years ago, but we did have at least a journey to Harvey, Illinois, which was a suburb, poor suburb, and to, to places like that, that we would go and see our friends of our family and they had children. We had good times. He, he allowed me to, he allowed us, because I have uh, 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 two other siblings that I was raised with, three in total uh, siblings. Um, and and, and he, he allowed us to participate in the world, you know, that which means we could do things that normally we wouldn't be able to do if we were in certain environments. So even though it was a hiding game, we still were able to bowl, we still were able to dance, we still were able to, to do all of those things because my father had a different way of looking at uh, the scriptures. He was also known in the family circles as the smartest, not educated smart, but smart. Uh, in terms of what he knew, what he thought about the Bible, yet he was part of that tradition. And we were still part of that tradition. So at the same time, uh, he was, uh, 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 um, he, he, he did all of those things well, uh, but what he didn't do well was stay away from the, uh, 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 the abuse, the sexual abuse that happened within uh, my household with, with me. And um, I remember that that was during the time that we had our own church that I remember because we were there early. We lived on the north side of Chicago and it was, um, it was a, a, a very uh, poor neighborhood, but we didn't know we were poor. The projects, which now they call Cabrini Green, um, uh, was where we were uh, lived by. The projects were places just where people with large families lived. And so we would pick up the families from the projects, bring them to the church, and that made our church larger than it really was because we came by families. And so we were in church all the time, usual, you know, and, and, and that was a way of life that we knew. But at the same time, you know, uh, uh, there was abuse within uh, my household that I talk about in the book. That abuse was, was, was uh, 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 sexual in ways, and it was uh, uh, scary in many other ways. It was frightening all the time. And, and, and incorporated with that abuse was how he, he, tended to, he tended to care more about the church. And I think a lot of preacher's kids will say that more than he cared about the family, uh, whatever that might look like at any given time. His priorities were definitely the church. He was he was a pastor, and 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 how he thought of that was different. Plus, he was also a lover, you know, of his of his mom, uh, who was still remaining living. And so uh, we, you know, I experienced one abuse that I talk about in the book in particular, and that is the the, the abuse of being just kicked down the stairs because I was literally in the way. Now, I'm not talking about 15 stairs. I'm not talking about 12 stairs or neither 10 stairs. It might have been four or five. But the issue was not the, uh, the, the, the wound of my, of my body. It was about the wound of my, 
my mind. And I remember this being the beginning of, of my thinking that I'm just not worthy of that kind of love, the kind of love that would could abuse you at night, could tie you to poles and whip you when you've done wrong or haven't done wrong. You know, the kind of the kind of love that didn't tell me I was a priority, the kind of love that where I was demanded to say, I love you, sit on the lap and say, I love you in the midst of what we both knew uh, was going on. And so that's the that was the contradiction uh, that I try to get across, not looking for for his name to be marred, not looking for um, uh, uh, people to take back what they might have said good about him, because those things were helpful also that I got to know someone that I didn't get to know. But it was the pain of, of, of all of it combined collectively that, that I remember uh, and, and, and was revealed to me while I was writing that all of this really started in my house. So this is very, this is very deep in terms of the pain that you experienced from, you know, the being kicked down the stairs to feeling like you didn't have your father's love to the sexual violence, to his, his mood swings, emotional abuse. And in your book, you talked about how your mother would try to explain away his behavior sometimes because your father was also a sexual violence, not sexual violence, but he was also a, a survivor of trauma himself. And so can you talk a little bit more about how her response to his behavior made you feel? What were your thoughts around that? Well, the, the response to um, the behavior of, of my father was, had nothing to do with the sexual trauma because I never told her that. But in many ways, um, we would get physically punished with a belt. <laughs> for whatever, however they, they describe that, uh, in ways that was, was extreme. And in ways that um, my mother, at the beginning, uh, tried to explain about his childhood and that, that he, the probability of him being even uh, uh, abused that way within his own household. This was never anything that he verified, but my mother talked about what they talked about. And so they they shared quite a bit in, in, of their lives together uh, from the point of view of the person that was speaking, of course. And so those are, were, you know, the, the, the strictness in the household. Uh, there were multiple children. Uh, she explained to me how the eldest of the children tended to be uh, uh, the more traumatized around the family dynamics and the younger ones didn't. So in the midst of that, you know, my mother was a, um, I almost call her a professional explainer. She wanted to explain why he did what he did. And, and it was nice hearing the stories, but it gave me no solace. Mm -hmm. And it gave me no, uh, no sense of empathy uh, uh, for him. And it felt like uh, I was being controlled by her in many ways to understand uh, that what he was doing came from a place. And so, 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 so that uh, if it wasn't how he was brought up, it was about, I think he's mental, you know, in some kinds of ways, she didn't say it that way, but there were some other moods around his behavior. And it was always a, uh, uh, an explaining away. If even as I got grown, I would call for my mother 
you know, and she would say, oh, he's doing fine. I didn't ask about him. You know, this kind of, kind of thing I would tell her as we would laugh it off, but she would put him on the phone. I'm like, hi, Dan, how are you? I would think, oh, I know you called for your, for your mother. I said, no, I want to see how you're doing too. And part of me did, but uh, uh, most of me did not because I didn't have things to say. Uh, the relationship wasn't built that way. And so, uh, uh, but that's what she did mostly. And so that's probably why I didn't talk about the other part of the abuse to years and years and years and years later. And that brings me to my next question, actually, because uh, many sexual violence survivors hold that secret and do not share for many reasons. And you held on to this for decades. I'm just kind of reading a piece from your book. You you described it as having fear and trepidation about sharing your story, especially with family. Uh, you stated the storyteller is accused of attempting to bring damage to particular family members by offering false accusations, lessening someone's value. At least that's the thought that the person who is a survivor of this is trying to defame the perpetrator. And then you go on to say, telling my truth is not an attempt to hurt, rather it's an attempt to heal. And I thought that was so powerful. And I want you to share a little bit about your story of wrestling with this secret for so long and then finally making the decision that you you did need to share. Well, it was helpful. It was helpful in, in sharing this, um, this secret that I did share it in spurts, but what I have a, with other people, you know, a, a, a best friend, uh, um, you know, one sibling, but it was never talked about in detail because my, my nature was never to get anything back to my mother that would hurt her. And so first and foremost, I was concerned about her, I always have been uh, concerned about her. As the younger child, I'm surprised, but she was, it was her that I, that I did not want to hurt. Secondly, um, my, my family on my dad's side, um, they think of things differently than I do. Um, they, they have, I have experienced them um, in conversations that, that they've had about other issues. And it always comes down to a, you know, that when you're, when you're doing well, there's always someone to come and try to tear you down. That, that, that uh, people have been after our family for a long time. And now it's coming back again. And so the real fear that was inside of me, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to say anything that would tear my family's name down. And I didn't want to say anything where I would be accused and looked upon as someone who has broke some kind of a code in the family or who's bringing up stuff that older people think you should not talk about period. Uh, I did not know how they would treat me. And I still don't know because I'm not sure who would buy the book and who would listen and who would, who would even dare to comment. But it's always there in my, uh, in my spirit that something that I had said or done has hurt my family to that extent where I'm being blamed again uh, for telling my truth from sharing my experience 
that is really meant to help people not hurt them. Uh, uh, and and, and it's, it, it will continue to be there. I had to break that barrier and decide to write. And that was a difficult process for me. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And as you're describing this, I'm thinking to myself, oh, what a weight someone has to carry when they feel like they have to protect those who might have harmed them and other family members, but at what cost, right? How it impacts your life by holding yes. that secret and not being able to tell your truth. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, how your experiences as a child, holding all this inside, how did it impact your life, romantic relationships, the decisions that you made? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to, in that, in that first chapter, get this part out uh, because I, I thought it was foundational to, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't want to start with such a, would probably be a shocking story to many. Um, and, and, um, but I started off that way because I began to look and reflect in my older years of how my, my actions and my attitude, I was angry quite a bit when I was younger, I was, uh, I, I, I had a certain stubbornness about me. I would charge out to, to fight my siblings if they, if I heard them say anything about, we had three that we grew up with, it was three of us, you know, and it was always two against one. And um, so that swayed, you know, between our moves. So when it's my turn to be jumped on by the other two, you know, I would, uh, 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 not so much as fight, but violently speak. Uh, and I think that came from just not having a voice about the other issues that I had been through. I, 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 and so, so what you read in that, in that second chapter is how my anger played out uh, in rela relationships with others, how anger played out. And I, and I didn't know this, you know, I just knew that I, I didn't like men really well I didn't trust men really well. I thought they were all dogs, you know, in the language that we had it. I thought that church people wasn't exempt from it and neither was anybody else. And so if you can't beat them, join them. You know, I had that kind of uh, attitude. And not only that, if you can't beat them, join them. It was if you can't beat them, join them and hurt them. And then not only was it, if you can't beat them, join them and hurt them, also hurt their partners because many were married. Because my proof was, I wanna to prove to everybody in the world, but it was only proving it to myself, that these men aren't faithful because it was nothing about anything that I enjoyed doing, but it was about the anger and the hurt and keeping silent and uh, all of those kinds of attitudes that I have that drove me into ways that were not helpful for me, that didn't bring me pleasure, that didn't bring me joy, that didn't allow me to say what I needed in relationships, satisfied, you know, being satisfied with any kind of relationship. And it just led me in a path that I was so self-destructive that, that I didn't know what to do with myself. And so making wrong decisions after wrong decisions after wrong decisions. And, and, and that's what that chapter really tries to talk about. And, and I, I begin that process with looking at how life went, period. 
you know, in all aspects of my life as I grew up. But that's where it started. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. As I was reading your book and I was paying attention to your your mindset, like the mentality, it was definitely one of I'm going to take control. Like, yes. I. Yep. If if anything, I'm not going to be vulnerable again. I am the one. Right. And it was very real to you at that time. You did a good job of ex explaining your thought process and how it really made sense to you and was justified, you. you know, in that time. But I think that's very common amongst sexual violence survivors to feel that exact same way that I'm going to take control and have, you know, ownership of my body, even if I'm hurting my body by being very promiscuous. But there was a turning point that you describe in your book when someone who you were in a relationship with, who you caught feelings with, even though you didn't want to catch feelings, but you caught feelings to him and he was married. And uh, a friend of yours who you call Bethany in the book was trying to warn you to leave this yes, relationship. I remember that name. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and, and you was like, uh-uh. And so you stayed in the relationship. And some things took turn for the worse. I'll let you kind of finish the story, but would you consider that a turning point for you? And if you can explain kind of some things from that story. I consider that, uh, and you're talking about the, the one that I um, thought that I was in love with and, and, and the one that was, that was married, granted, I can use the excuse that he was not married um, when I met him, but he was living with the mother of his children. And that's only a way that I can make myself feel better. And so I'm, I'm using the term married because that's what uh, uh, he was in my eyesight, even though I didn't know it, that he wasn't. And even though he turned uh, out to get married during the time that we were together. And I can use that as my excuse for anger, but um, no excuses. It's, it's about choices. And so with what I knew about love, which was very little, I, I, I thought that I had loved him and loved him in ways that um, I had never experienced before. And um and then my, my girlfriend, Bethany, you know, I, I certainly remember the name I gave her. Uh, uh, she, she kind of warned me, we worked together, that I had to make choices and kind of got into that spiritual realm that, that God can punish me uh, 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 and that, that God can take my children from me, that God could um, um, uh, take his life. And so all of that stuff, and then so then I started thinking about that. And I'm like, okay, God, my boyfriend, God, my boyfriend, God, my boyfriend, God, my boyfriend. So then I made the conscious choice at that point that I was not going to give up on this relationship. And so uh, I talk about how he died. And he was 30 something and how that impacted me. And, uh, um, and so I'm not sure that it was a turning point, but it impacted me in ways that, 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 that actually made me feel guiltier. That's the impact that it had on me that if I had not had done this, that he would not have died. 
I, I, I realized that his children had certain thoughts about me, or at least a couple of them did. And, and uh, how can I even begin to think that that was okay? Especially now that I'm a clergy, um, um, retrospect kind of conversations. Um, and um, um, it impacted me to have more guilt. That, uh, and I would dream about him. And, and when I would dream about him, I could not um, speak to him. I could just see him, but I could have no conversation because in the dream, as long as we stayed our distance from one another, then it was okay for him to live in my dream. But it couldn't, it would be cut short if I was able to have a conversation. So I went through a lot of grief about him dying. I went through conversations with his was his his person that was a wife then by then, and um and we talked, and um, my choice is to stay away from the funeral. I talk about that and why I chose to stay away from the funeral, but I'm not sure um, it made me better. Even though we had talked about before he died of being of not seeing each other, knowing that this is not right, and not seeing each other. And we had got to that point of not seeing each other much, you know, and so it was a gradual, supposed to be a gradual breakaway. And he died before that actual breakaway happened. Wow. Yeah, that's that's tough. And I was feeling that from your story on how you were grieving, but it was disenfranchised grief, if you will, because you couldn't show up to the funeral. You couldn't publicly grieve because you were, in a sense, the other woman. And so the shame, the grief, all those complex emotions were very hard for you to process. And so I know you had to work through those emotions along with the other trauma that you were dealing with. And so I'm curious as to how you would describe your journey moving forward towards healing, what Ooh. took place? Like, and I know that that's probably a two hour podcast. So I don't know how you're going to summarize this, but what were some of the things that took place to move you forward? I think that, um, I think it was, was more or less me trying to be a better person and me wanting to be a better person while still having the residualness in my personality, in my persona, in how I negotiated life, in how I stayed away from people intentionally that uh, I didn't think I could have anyway, so it was comfortable to for them to belong to someone else because I didn't believe I deserved that myself. And so with all of that tension, I still had this, this need to, to work through some of those things. And so uh, 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 counseling helped, getting therapy helped, um, providing myself with more self-care and more self-love, um, doing the work that I'm doing now, you know, around sexual and domestic violence was cathartic. Writing the book was cathartic. Um, and, and so all of those things over the years um, um, helped. But, but the ability to make healthy choices and make, as my husband calls it, good decisions was still there. The question was whether I was going to succumb to it or whether I wouldn't. And the wrestling with my faith journey that kept telling me what I had to do, what I should do, you know, what I'll go to hell for, 
you know, and all of that at the same time, not going to let them control me either. And so um, it's, it's, it's been a journey. And I, you know, and it's, it's been a journey. I, I, I feel that I'm in a better place, but I had to wrestle. But I had to also renegotiate my life, renegotiate my, my, my um, renegotiate and understand that what I went through, what impacted me was trauma related. Learn how to forgive myself because I still take accountability. I know in trauma therapy, they tell you that, you know, that this is not your fault, that you couldn't help. And, and a lot of that is true for the moment. But I made conscious decisions out of that trauma. And I want to make sure that I hold myself accountable uh, for those decisions while understanding it's just not my cross to bear. That, that God is a forgiving God. That God is a God is a God of love. And, 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 and what we've been preaching in the church, number one, pastors couldn't live up to it themselves including mine, you know, and so taking the pressure off of me and what made me really come to a better place is when I understood how much God loved me. That's what got me, not a choice, not the book of man that they tried to present me with, you know, not the heaven or hell decision, but it's knowing that, that God loved me through this, whatever it is I'm going through, including now. And so it makes me not as hard on myself. It's caused me to love myself unconditionally. It's caused me to embrace the choices because if I had have known better, I probably would have done better. It made me really learn how to listen to the voice of God, which is not the sweet voice of God. God talks a little rough to me like I talk to everybody else. So, you know, he said, maybe if I just talk to my child that way, <laughs> that we could, you know, we could get a better understanding. But life has been full of those kinds of twists and turns uh, 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 of taking advantage of vulnerabilities that I had. And I don't know if they did that or not because I let them. But that's how it left me. That's what it left me with that. that um, how do I find my voice? How do I tell people what I want, what I need, what I will have? What, what are my boundaries? How do I negotiate with, with God? Uh, and not um, and not with men, uh, which has been the voice that I've heard most of my life. But I can say that generically now, you know, how I negotiate with people and how I don't allow people to control my actions, but I do allow them to influence them. But I can only tell me what's good for me and love me more and more day by day. Wow, that's good. I was over here shouting. That's really good. And I think the fact that you were speaking about essentially owning your ugly, as one of my previous podcast guests said, in terms of the, the things that you did, right? Understanding with the root, but still mm -hmm. taking accountability. I think that's empowering. It, it gets you out of the victim mentality that you can stay stuck in, you know? So that is very powerful that you realize that. And I think also one of the things that I wanted to bring out from your book is you talk about forgiveness, not only towards your dad, which, you know, I, I know that's a big piece, but it was very interesting when you started talking about forgiveness, even towards your mom, right? You had questions for her for uh, uh, most of your life, right? And you had to kind of have some difficult conversations later on. Talk about that experience. Yeah, you know, my mother, I truly, truly, truly loved. 
in what I would call an unconditional way. But I always lived with um, uh, the fact that she should have known this was happening. She should have known that, um, that when I wanted to go with her, that that was a reason rather than make me stay at home. That these are things that mothers just should know <laughs> that's going on uh, uh, with their child and, and pick that up. And I, think that, and I think that for a long time, I wondered why she did not. And so what I, and, 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 and there was no answers to that. But what, what, what made me really fully let all of that go, let it all go. I, I wouldn't even say forgiveness in that. But let, truly is when in 2007, I, uh, two years before she died, I, I, had, I had colon cancer. And my mother insisted doing my, um, my chemotherapy that started because of the recurrence uh, uh, that came later. She insisted that my husband bring me to her house because I had to leave uh, chemotherapy with a fanny pack. If anybody has had that, uh, uh, it was connected to a port uh, in my chest. And so I would actually take chemotherapy the rest of the weekend at home from the, fa from the fanny pack. And the way she loved me and cared for me and looked out for me reminded me of how she's always done that. And that I'm still playing the victim. That it, and, and it, it, you know, and so two years before she died was, she never saw it or she never even thought she did, but the release came in me. I, I love this woman, you know, and, and, and why am I wasting time with uh, uh, should have or could have or recognized? And, and it, I have, you know, my, my body is such that when I decide to let it go, it's gone. When I decide to hold it, it's there, you know, and that can be scary depending on who's confronting me at any given time. And so just being able to let go of that and love her like the woman that she was, like the survivor like that she was, like the caretaker that she was, not only to our family, to others, like the letting go because in the midst of that, the, the abuse that she experienced uh, emotionally even more than, than anything. You know, and as I put in my introduction uh, to my, to, you know, in dedications that I think she was the first survivor I knew. And so I'm asking her to be this all person for me. And she probably was not that all person for her. Yet she never wavered in her love. And I came to understand that as a, as a, as a woman who had gone through some things. And so I was glad to get the release. I don't think she ever felt that, but I was glad to get the release at that time. That's good. That's good. And I'm glad you used that word release mm -hmm. as it, as it relates to the emotions that you were carrying around your mom, the questions that you had. So I want to ask about how you released the anger that you had uh, for your dad. Uh, what was your process of releasing those emotions that were no longer serving you? Uh, one of my, my best girlfriends uh, that I name in the book is, is the questioner. Uh, uh, she's, she's really good at, uh, asking questions and asking deep questions. Sometimes I love it when she does it. Sometimes I just, it gets on my nerves. But she's, if I'm going to tell her something, I better expect that she's going to follow through. And one of the things that we talked about in the midst of that is having compassion. And, um, and just like 
my mother and maybe even worse. You know, I had to learn to have compassion for him. And so being able to, again, which is an important part of forgiveness. And as I was able to, to, to continue to talk about it, and she would ask me, was I angry at him? And those are things that I really could, I don't know how I was feeling. I was too busy acting out and too busy, you know, wishing, you know, that, that, that he had a committed suicide when he swore he was gonna do it to my mother. While my older sister was saying, no, daddy, daddy, I had to, I had to still wrestle with all of the other feelings I had about um, um, uh, not having the kind of father that I wanted to have, letting go the, the envy that others could talk about their dad in such ways that I could not. And I don't mean envy of hurt. I mean, I, I, I mean of, uh, um, of, of resenting that person. Sometimes we use, we think of envy in ways that I don't. I think that the envy that I was having is the, was the hurt that says, I didn't have that. It's not mad because you did. You know, I'm happy for you, but, the, but what came inside of me is that I never had that. And so what I, what I was able to put together in all these years is that my compassion helped, that my girlfriend helped me to cultivate, which I'm still cultivating. You know, I'm a little years far behind. I just got to him. <laughs> so, so being able to, to, um, to think about that in ways of compassion and that what people have been through, but, but not denying my own hurt. And so I ended up in a place that says, yes, you know, I never hated him. I never was, I might've been, had some anger, but I never hated him. I just, and I use this in my book. I just didn't know how to love him uh, because of the experience that we had. Right. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And I know there was so much work done in between. You're just trying to summarize years and years of experiences. But I'm glad that you were at a place where you were able to show compassion and, and release uh, the anger or the, the ball of trauma emotions that we'll call it uh, as it relates to him. The compl complications and contradictions are, are just so uh, impacted by the stories that we have that it just can't come out in one sentence. No, I didn't hate him. Yes, I angry. Yes, I so it's not that easy. It's easier for other people to think that, but it's not easy when you've been involved in these relationships that have had good in them. You yes. know, and, and at the same time, very painful and hurtful. I appreciate that. I, I really do because I, I think that for someone who might be struggling in a relationship right now. And they're going back and forth. They might be in a domestic violence relationship, a sexual violence relationship. Remember, domestic violence is not just physical. We have the emotional, we have the sexual, we have all these other dynamics, financial, right? And so someone in that relationship can say, I see the good in this person, yet, but they also see the 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 sinful nature, the 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 abuse, all this other stuff. And it is this ball of just, it's like yarn, like that's tied up in a this gigantic knot, right? And so it's very difficult. For, for for someone to articulate all the emotions involved. And that's why one of the things I really appreciated in your class was your compassion for someone who's in a domestic violence relationship. Because someone from the outside looking in might be, girl, just leave. What's wrong with you? Why are you staying? You know, girl, I would never do that. You know how people like, I would never, right? <laughs> Listen, stop. 
<laughs> with the I would never. <laughs> because you don't know until you were in that relationship, right? And so I want you to to speak to that, you know, some of the lessons that you've learned around that mm-hmm. that lesson. You already kind of touched on it, but especially mm-hmm. I want you to speak to someone directly in a domestic or sexual violence relationship and navigating that, even if they they might want to leave, but they want to stay in, in that journey around that. Yes. Even when when I teach um, domestic violence or do the training that I that I that I am involved in with, they trust one of the last things we ask about why don't people leave, you know, these relationships, especially as it relates to domestic violence, um, is, you know, we name, we say, number one, that's not the question that the proper question, but since you ask it, the question should be, how can anybody live in a household and do that to someone? And that as women, that we have, we have had the burden of bearing the burdens, especially black women, of black men and never really taking that as care for ourselves. And we were doing it to the point of hurt. And so we've already been conditioned, and that's what this book talks about, also all of these intersections that come into play. We have already been conditioned, whether we know it or not, uh, to take these things for his betterment, that it was part of our responsibility to fix it. It was part of our responsibility to bear one another's burdens. It was part of our responsibility to love, to cherish and sickness and health and plenty and in want as long as you both shall live. It's part of our responsibility that black people, black women have kind of taken on in ways that we don't even recognize. And so it's not, it's not um, unusual to have all of these mixed feelings. And the last thing on the list of, 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 of why didn't she leave? Because people ask that question. It can be pressure from communities. It, it, can, it can be finances, it can be the children. But the one that they never guess, I always say there's one missing. There's one missing. Who can tell what it is? It's that blank spot number 14 maybe, maybe 10, maybe it's number 10, but whatever it is, people never guess it. They doing better now when I teach the class and that's that they love them. Or at least they have their version of love for them. You know, and, 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 and now that they know that it can't be fixed, you know, what am I gonna do? Who's gonna want me after that? And so there are so many variables. My church says this, my community is saying one thing. He just sent me a singing telegram. Oh, he took me out to the movies. He's never been to the movies before. You know, and so there's all these things that that we have been conditioned to see, that we've been conditioned to see as another reason why we should stay in these relationships. And so that's one of the things that I want to say to to, to women in general and Black women in specific. You know, know yourself. Know that many of these things that, that have been taught to you were not clarified in ways that center your experience and then ask the questions of God rather than responding to the questions of God and your experience is not included in that. And so doing clarification based on my experience helped me. And then how I believe that the word of God spoke to that, how I spoke to it, how I negotiated, I put the power back in my hands without any uh, guilt of what might happen to the other person and shame and was able to make better decisions around that. And I think we all need to be patient with ourselves. 
in the midst of that. Mm, those are some gems, Dr. Davis. But when you were speaking around the the idea of not focusing so much on like, are they going to be okay? I don't know the exact words that you use, yeah. but I, I think that sometimes that's the focus when we don't want to leave. Because again, you mentioned there is often love involved. If you've been married to someone, even if they've been abusive to you for 15 years, you there's a piece of you who love the way that they used to treat you when you first started dating and all these other dynamics. And so it's very difficult to leave. But for someone who is on the fence, they're, they're trying to make their decision as to how they want to move forward. Uh, are there some resources that you would direct them to or share? Yeah. You know, we have rape crisis centers all over the states. You have to find out where things are in, in the places where you live. We have domestic violence agencies all over the states uh, and connected to them are support groups. Before, as a uh, trauma-informed pastor, professor, I'm always asking, before I refer them to their pastor, I always ask them about their pastor. Because sometimes you just don't want to refer them back to the pastor. And so I I, I personally do that work with, with the people that I have had contact over the years. And so, you know, deciding whether that's something you can talk to your pastor about or not, you know, as individual, but it's also can be, it could be helped in the counseling sessions that you take. And I would advise someone that's a specialist in trauma-informed care. And for Black people, I would, I would recommend Black trauma-informed women uh, uh, to, to help you negotiate this for the least possible chance of you running into androcentric type of responses. Not saying that we're going to be perfect either. But, but it, for the least possible ch- chance of being re-injured, re-traumatized, you'll be selective about where you go and who, who you talk to and, and your friends. You know, it's just nothing like your friends if, if you've been blessed to have it. I have three best friends. I have cut off the limit of best friends. I have very good friends following that. You know, because with best friends comes some obligations also. So I had to go to turn to good friends. Oh, I have some really good friends too. And so um, being able to go to them uh, uh, individually and group-wise is, is helpful. You know, uh, thinking about, um, um, uh, what is it, uh, the, the, the picture with, was it Whitney Houston in? Uh, one of them when they said, this is supposed to be a party. You know, and, and, and in that they were, all three were crying and, talking about the brokenness in their relationships and, you know. And Wait to exhale type moment, right? Wait to exhale, that's what it was. And then someone said, I thought this was supposed to be a party. You know, and they got up to dance, use your body, dance, right. have fun, find those moments of, of joy, you know, resist anything that's, that, that is attempting to oppress you, even in your own church. I, I, you know, I think I said this in the last time we spoke, sitting in the back of the church, I don't like backseat churches. But I've learned to sit back there so that I can ease out, you know, if I feel like that, you know, I need to because of what I'm hearing. But I've also learned to go to church and get the message that I need and tune out the rest. You know, if it's not what I believe, God has a will for me. That's good. And so those are the things. It's just, a, a you know, just take care of yourself. Right. Just take care of yourself in ways that, 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 that we have to, you know, I explained that we have this, you know, for me. I describe it as we have 
we don't lose thought, but we get messages that are stronger than the ones that used to bind us up. And so when this one comes and says, you know, Sharon, you are, you know, you, you, you're not capable of doing this work. You're a fraud. You don't even know what you're talking about. You, know, you, you write this book, people are going to be mad at you. You know, and so this voice comes out strong. I say, oh, you know, <laughs> don't even listen to them. They, they don't know what they're talking about. That's somebody you knew a long time ago. You're very capable. I affirm myself. I affirm myself while I was writing. And I'm good. You know, I, I don't worry now about what people will say because people are people and they're where they are. But I'm good. Amen. <laughs> it will be good because I've done that work. I had joy, you know, that, that God gave me that nobody can take away. Take away. Now, I can be angry. I can be upset. But you can't steal my joy. You know, and so being able to do the kind of work that you need to do so that you bet if you're hearing that echo, that's me being notified that I have a, a Facebook uh, a message on. OK, work at. it does that all the time. Haven't figured out how to get rid of it. But that's what that is. So pardon me. Oh, that's OK. But no, that that's really good advice. And I, I wanted just to say something really quickly before we move on. If you're in a relationship that is abusive please do not leave without a safety plan that you've talked through with someone who's an advocate who can walk you through that Absolutely. because leaving is the most dangerous time in that relationship. So yes, that is just a public safety announcement for those. Amen. Who are well needed. Yes. Well needed. Yes. Yes. But I want us to fast forward now to today. You kind of brought us up to speed on your story and how God has just so redeemed your life, even romantic relationships to the work you're doing now. Summarize that briefly and how you see the night and day difference as the uh, Dr. Davis 20, 30 years ago to today. Yeah. You know, I think today, you know, I, I don't I don't try to get rid of the walls. I bring them down when I know it's safe to do so. And I bring them up, you know, when I know that I should be able to, that I have to protect myself from something. And for me, that's okay. Because the walls were necessary then and they still may be necessary now. We live in a cruel world. I've learned not to run from relationships because that's my first, uh, you know, that trauma response is a flight you know, a uh, 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 freeze or fight, right? And so I've been a, early in life, I was a runner and I still know how to do that. And so when, when things get a little too complicated to me, I'd be like, you know, run, run, <laughs> get away from this. And then I remind myself, no, you know, I know the difference between uh, a spousal issues when you're married and, um, and, and, and abuse. I know the difference. You know, I'm not as quick to give up on, uh, 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 on my own relationship if I don't like something or if something triggers me. I stay in, in, in counseling every, every now and then I'm going to go back because it's time, as one lady said to me, it's time for me to revisit my therapist again. <laughs> and so becoming a lifelong uh, a pattern of that behavior. But I also learned about me. And I know about my flaws and, and, and I know about things that can happen that I can do that people could also decide they want to run from. And so I know that no relationship is not going to be, it's going to be without its flaws. Even those that claim 
perfect relationships. They probably haven't got to the point yet where they can they can say, okay, well, let me let me take that back. And so learning what relationships are, what commitments are, uh, having an attitude that all those things I used to do, you know, it's not like I, the Bible says I don't want to do anymore. You know, I, I'll change that to say I can't do anymore. Those are not options for me anymore. You know, and so who am I going to be now? Now that I'm not that person, how do I begin to negotiate uh, uh, who I am now? And it's a process. And I'm probably going to die not perfect, not having perfected it. But I'm, as, as, uh, as the songwriter said, I'm stronger, I'm wiser, I'm better, much better. When I look back over my life and see what God has done for me, you know, I know that I have made it and that I'll continue to make it. Amen. Amen. I have one more question for you before we uh, find out how people can get a copy of your book. If you were to talk to that Sharon Ellis Davis 30, 40 years ago, and you go with the time machine and be like, Sharon, <laughs> I need to tell you some things, sister. What would you tell little Sharon? To learn how to say to myself, stop. Because one of the things that I, I talk about, uh, I don't know how much I put in the book and didn't put in the book, uh, but one of the things that I, 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 I talk about is that had any one of those people in my life where I was acting out said to me with authenticity, stop, I would have. And so I would say to that little girl, learn how to use stop on yourself. Don't do anything that's going to in the long run hurt you because you can't hurt those people that you dealt with because that's who they are. You're going to hurt yourself. And so learn how to stop and take care of you. Go deeper and figure out what it is that you need and be authentic to that. Amen. That's good advice. Really good advice. Now, where can people pick up a copy of your book? Amazon is probably the best place. Um, Googling my whole name, Sharon Ellis Davis, or the title of the book, you know, The Trauma of Sexual and Domestic Violence will get you there. It has shades of, 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 of um, purple and teal to represent uh, sexual violence and domestic violence. And this is Domestic Violence Month coming up. Everybody should just go get that book now. <laughs> Use it in your Bible study. Use it for your own self-growth. Use yes. it in the seminaries, you know, uh, they'll be part of the class. They'll be a part of what I'm, I'm teaching already. And so just get this book and think of how you can creatively get with women. Critique it. You know, uh, uh, you know, I tell people when you enter a story, you respect the person's story. And it is my story that I, that I do ask for respect. But I, everything is open to critique in the midst of that. And so, you know, have fun with it in your groups. Laugh at some of the stuff, you know, laughing is a wonderful thing, you know, that I've learned to do. But most of all, connected to who you are today and what resonates with you and what kind of changes do we need to make in this world within the criminal justice system, policing and in the courts that I talk about, you know, within individuals who how do we interrupt people that try to put us down? you know, or try to convince us to be someplace where we know we couldn't doggone well, we don't have no right to be there. 
you know, into, in, into the, our uh, uh, churches, you know, that, you know, we can't just listen to everything that everybody tells us. We have to save ourselves, you know, and so we do that by listening and discerning and critiquing. And if we can critique the Bible, you certainly can critique a book, you know, but we have to learn for ourselves in our own way. This is my story. This is where I came from. How does it connect to your stories? How might you have done things differently? How might you have reflected if you're the one writing? Because I really want women to write if they want to share their stories, because I believe it's a it is a important part of research. Your voice must be heard. The song said, I'm a woman with a voice and my voice must be heard. You know, and I'll bow to no man's world. You know, our voices have to be centered, taken off the margins, uh, uh, put up out there as importance and say, okay, speak to me. Because, and speak to me out of what I just presented, not out of what you think I should be or you who you think I should be. That's important. That's good. And you did just that. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much for your boldness. Thank you for this book. Hold it up right here. Yeah, there's the colors right about. there. There's the yeah. cover. So pick up your book. I'll have uh, information in the show notes on how you can get a copy with the direct link along with how you can follow her on social media. Yes, and I have I have uh, books here. I'm going to be going to book signing, so I take them with me. But also, if you want a signed copy, if you don't really know me, you know, go on the author's page and tell me that, and I can inbox you and tell you my phone number for Zelly and my cash app, and I can mail it to you. Uh, signed, sealed, and delivered to you. To you, and so either way, you know you're welcome to. That's let's awesome. go get it. That's great. <laughs> Congratulations, Dr. Davis, on making this bold step to tell your story. Thank you so much, Reverend Jocelyn, and thank you for the work you do. You know, to talk about trauma, to talk about trauma healing, and not to let the intersections of our lives uh, uh, be forgotten in the midst of how we, what we need to do to heal. And God will provide. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Davis. And thank you all for listening to this show today. She was such an amazing blessing to us. And again, make sure you pick up a copy of her book. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our channel. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts facebook and youtube so follow us like us leave a review and if you're looking for a christian counselor and resources on trauma healing groups you can find all this information on our website at faithonthejourney.org again that is faithonthejourney.org so that's it for this week thanks for tuning in and until next week you keep your faith on the journey i'll see you soon <music>